everybody's remaking all these movies, all the merchandise and all that stuff. And but you see it anyway, and then you remember, ah, yes, this is World War One. I. I mean, you that's can see. That's not the reason you see it. Well, no, it's not the reason you see it, but it's what you gain from it. So if we think about yeah. like the cultural memory of a thing, like the cultural memory of a war, that's that's what we get is like the muddy, blasted forest. The version of World War One we like to remember, you know. Well, don't even like to remember, but we do remember. People want to look at something gross and awful, you know. Yeah. Want to see the big guns, the big explosions. In a world of ugly, grimy buildings ruled by a decrepit elite class, a flashily dressed madman with a disfigured face breaks into an art museum with a gang of black-clad henchmen blasting obnoxious music, attempting to shock the press in general and to impress one woman in particular. They release poison gas through the building's air ducts, killing the patrons at their brunch tables. Then they dance through the museum, destroying the works of old masters and impressionists alike. They splatter drab paintings and marble busts with garish synthetic colors, slash canvases and smash statues. The only artwork the madman refuses to destroy is a tortured symbolist painting he kinda likes. Welcome to the Pointless Century, where we discuss history, culture, and politics in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. Today we'll be discussing the DC Warner Brothers movies Wonder Woman and Birds of Prey. Entry points including feminism, pacifism, sociopathy, the Batman of 1989, Black Panther, as always, the First World War, and inevitably, fascism. I'm going to start by talking about the weird bit uh, from the 1989 Batman, the Batman of my youth, the Batman which marks the end of the 20th century. Yes, um, of course. <clears throat> speaking in my best Batman voice. Um, <laughs> I wanted to use a description of that because in my mind, it's the kind of scene that... Uh, Filippo Tommaso Marinetti would have absolutely loved, right? So, <laughs> so in, in a certain sense, the, the Joker is this perfect futurist anti-hero, um, even, even down to this use of something like poison gas. The act of creating art is the act of destroying art, which is to say that it's also a terrorist act right he's he's literally killing people to impress a woman and then if you were to ask the joker were you killing all those people to impress that woman he'd be like no i don't care about that woman at all it's very very futurist mm -hmm. um and i think that the that's not perhaps an obvious link to something like wonder woman and birds of prey but it can be uh Certainly, uh, we can look at 
a movie like Wonder Woman as the sort of um, effort to figure out, okay, well, what would be a, a female version of Superman? Not Superwoman, that's for sure. <laughs> I feel like Wonder Woman is more empowered. Uh, I mean, in in the first place, she has her own name. That helps, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and so similarly, like a character like Harley Quinn is that sort of uh, feminine inverse of the Joker. And one thing that I really liked about uh, the Birds of Prey uh, is that it is about her independence. And I should at least once say that the title of this movie is Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. And the Birds of Prey don't even come up until the end and then it's like a gag, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, which is not entirely uh, dissimilar from how Wonder Woman is never, I think, a single time referred to as Wonder Woman in the Wonder Woman movie. Yeah, no. I also feel like because she's such a regular pop culture icon that people just accept it, whereas uh, a solo Harley Quinn hasn't really been seen too much, except for like 80s and early 2000s cartoons, where it's more usual for people to accept Wonder Woman as a singular person instead of Harley Quinn as an individual persona. And Wonder Woman had her own television show in the 70s or 80s. Linda Carter was famous when I was young for selling contact lenses. Because really? the whole thing was that she had beautiful blue eyes. Mm. And of course, you wouldn't want her to wear glasses. That would make her a dweeb. No. Right? And we see in, in Wonder Woman even the bit where it's like, it's, it's like, it's literally a Clark Kent bit. Look at me. Yeah. I'm harmless. I put on glasses for business meetings. I'm it's like when so I take my glasses off, that's when I start <laughs> knife throwing or whatever. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> also, because that's, uh, that's when you aim best. Well, this <laughs> yes, is of course. Corbin. Anna knows this, but my dad recently built a Target, so I've been knife throwing quite regularly. That's pretty cool. Definitely in the superhero movie, but maybe in action movies more generally very often this this introductory action scene where it's like look at how badass i am look at what i can do and maybe also in the way that that's done that tells us something about the character but also it's just kind of enjoyable for the audience and it is to my mind sort of fundamentally futurist in that it's very action oriented in that usually it's about death and destruction what we see with wonder woman's entrance onto the battlefield is to my mind this great dream of the first world war that the this idea of breaking the stalemate that one one great weapon could blast through no man's land uh, and, and and turn the tide of the war yeah it's a, where we get in the next war we get to to atomic bombs and then in science fiction eventually we get to something like a death star right um and of course, because she's a woman and therefore automatically objectified, she herself Yay. is the weapon, right? Mm -hmm. uh, though we, we do kind of get that uh, in cer certain types of male action heroes too, uh, the, the man as weapon. 
the flip side of this is uh, that character of Dr. Maru with the poison gas that, of course, is going to turn the tide of the war, right? Something that, again, in the literal history of the war uh, was something they were always trying to do, figure out what the next weapon would be, what the next strategy would be, whether that was a particular type of gas. Originally, the first use of poison gas was trying to do that uh, with Fritz Haber uh, and that uh, use of chlorine in the Second Battle of Ypres. I think it's relevant here because in this style of movie, you always have a scene like that. I mean, maybe not always, always, but usually you do have a scene like that. Um, in Birds of Prey, it's this scene where she blasts into the uh, police office, right? And she's going through this de police department office and just knocking out cop after cop with yeah. uh, the riot gun. Um, which, and I love that she uses this riot gun, and I love that uh, she has the bean bags loaded with all kinds of different stuff. And like every once in a while, there's a sparkly one or yeah. a gooey one. And it's funny and it's cool and it's badass, right? And similarly, we get this scene in Wonder Woman where she's like, no, I'm going over the top. And she just, you know, walks out onto that mm -hmm. battlefield uh, with them all firing at her. And so we're very accustomed to this idea that. Um, the the hero or the superhero of the movie uh has this scene where they walk into danger with this total nonchalance just very prepared mm -hmm. or 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 maybe in fact unprepared but it's just like shit so easy for me because look at how badass i am so anyway this is i i'm spending too much time trying to throw it to you Anna uh to get to get your uh to get your reactions to uh, a movie like Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn yeah <laughs> and, and and particularly whether you think it has any relationship to a movie like Joker I think it's definitely re related to Joker but um obviously on a tangent you know that's their whole story is that um, they've broken up and now she is independent, you know, alone for the first time. The thing that shocked me the most was, at least to me, how different the tones were of, of both of the films. Because um, in Joker, we see, obviously, this progression. Um, it, remi it did remind me a lot of Taxi Driver, like you said. Um, the, the parallels there were, you know, pretty obvious. Like, I found myself um writing down at certain points like oh my gosh i can see this in in bickle directly um that was that was less so for um miss harley quinn here and her egg sandwiches um i was i guess the thing that i'd like to speak most about is the paradoxes of feminism that we see in this film yeah. and i know you mentioned that we'd like to talk about that i i do think that obviously yes she is free but then i also think that um we still see her as a character trapped within the paradoxes of women in the media that have persisted for a long time like yeah I, which paradoxes <laughs> there are so many <laughs> right exactly it's it's fun to be a girl um <laughs> Like, yes, yes, she is badass, but then we also see, oh, she's off on her own, like, she doesn't report to a man anymore, 
she's doing all these badass things, but then she's she's still represented as weak or as as sexualized. And I think um, that obviously has to do a lot with the film industry in itself. You know, um, you have to make a profit. I mean, that's what matters above everything else, I guess. But that was the biggest paradox for me because, you know, she's, yes, she's out there. But another interesting thing that my mother told me is that, well, she couldn't be, she couldn't be overweight. And then I'm, I'm just like, well, mom, yes, she could. But then you wouldn't make any money off of the film. And it's just, it's, it's, I think the system as a whole is flawed. That's thigh gap. That's a big <laughs> Cut off shorts and suspenders. I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, I mean, we haven't even started on uh, Wonder Woman's outfit. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's even way worse. Just like, like armor and nothing else. <laughs> and nothing. Like right here. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah. The, yeah. So That's fun. Alone. perfectly imperfect makeup. <laughs> the fashionable tattoos the fashionably unfashionable tattoos <laughs> yeah i swear to god there were points in that film where especially when she was walking across the battlefield i thought like that butt flap is way too short i'm gonna see stuff that i don't want to see <laughs> just some breeze is just gonna come and i'm just gonna get a whole lot of gal Gadot's butt <laughs> to be fair the character of charlie Ewan Bremer's character. I, I appreciate that they did uh, do the historically accurate thing and they put the Scotsman in a uniform literally with a kilt. And there's a scene where he warms up his balls <laughs> on the campfire. Like the first thing he does, like, oh, you guys started a fire here. Let me warm up my balls. And he just flips up his kilt. And so, uh, you know, it's obviously, cold. Obviously I just have bad experiences <laughs> with my ex and kilts and oh, I'm not no. go Can into we it. that story. The, the fact that anyone was fighting in kilts in uh, the First World War is absurd, and the fact that anybody still wears kilts is even worse. But anyway, so she's not the only one skimpily clad. But obviously, this is a this is a movie thing, and obviously, this is this is about sexualization yeah, exactly. of women. There are no fucking guys on that island. Who are you gonna pick up? Another well, girl? But here's the thing, though, is that that <laughs> as far as the the male gaze of film is concerned, this is not the case because obviously, oh. this is a movie that you know, like every movie uh, is you know, in a certain sense made for men to watch and uh, encourages compulsory bisexuality for the female viewer but in the world of wonder woman her dressing that way has nothing to do with men she in theory shouldn't care at all about you know the, the men looking at at her and is neither embarrassed by it nor trying to impress them yeah but if she's grown up her entire life surrounded <clears throat> by the hottest freaking women created by the gods like yeah you're probably yeah you're probably going to be tempted to some degree well, like that is the college. problem. The problem is that they're not presented in the movie as lesbians, and obviously they should be. Where are the lesbian Amazons? We need that. Well, ultimately, the birds of prey are the lesbian Amazons we get. They may not be the lesbian Amazons we want, but they're the lesbian Amazons we deserve. Uh, but it's it, in 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 uh, birds of prey. It's not even just that. I mean, it it's she's sexualized and also presented as childlike, right? Yeah, you're right. And Even that, that would... use of the word em emancipation, right? Mm -hmm. like, 
But she's mm. still a partial extension of the Joker up until she blows up the, the chemical plant. Well, arguably she always is, just she because that's is. where she is, is in the plot line, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she talks uh, about it the whole way through. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that there is something in there that is, I don't know, meaningful or aspirational, at least for some people. Um, and yeah, there are regrettable. Am I supposed to say cringy? Is that is that how this no, use, word is used? Yeah, that's, that's how you use <laughs> that's it. That's completely yeah. appropriate. There are plenty of things in both of these movies that are cringy, but uh, I think that. I did like Birds of Prey better than I liked Wonder Woman. And part of that was that I felt like it was moving in a direction where, where the women were trying to do their own thing. Whereas in Wonder Woman, it's very much about her stepping into a man's world and integrating herself to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like the aspect of Harley Quinn where she's separating herself from the men and she's going free and stuff. And I like that, but also, Wonder Woman is badass. <laughs> yes, she is. I, yes, she is. Yeah, well... Harley yeah. Quinn is too, but... I mean... Wonder Woman. Come they're on. just in, uh, in different ways. I, I, It's interesting that you say that you like um, Birds of Prey more because I, well, I liked, Har I liked Harley Quinn's character more, but I thought, I thought the um, actual, you know, the elements that they added to the film, like the narration and then um, switching around in the plot line was actually more annoying, but it's mm -hmm. it's really funny though with that contrast because I think um, Harley Quinn is actually the stronger character. Yeah, Wonder Woman is like, yes. oh, what's this? And she somewhat acts like a child in that. But I also like Wonder Woman more because it has a more historical application. Right. And that's actually, I was fully expecting that I would like Wonder Woman more because it's ostensibly about the First World War. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, but uh, um, also, but I'm, I'm a Wonder sucker Woman for is a better standalone. What? Wonder Woman is a better standalone, and I haven't seen Joker. Um, mm -hmm. Not Joker. Ugh. But I haven't seen Suicide Squad, and like, that was my first, like, well, Suicide I don't think squad. anybody has. Um, I mean, if they have, they've probably tried to forget it. That's my understanding. <laughs> What does it mean to make a feminist superhero movie? And is that what these are? And we've sort of already said that maybe that's not even possible. Maybe that's the fault of the film industry. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Because in, in order to make a profit, you have to play in the you have to play into the contradictions that exist. Yeah, I, I believe that. Play to the white cis het ideals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. White uh, cisgender heterosexual. Well, and is that 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 is like a movie culture thing and has been for a long time, but it's also very much a comic book culture thing. Um, it it does have a lot to do with the way that they're perceiving fanboys. Um, and uh, the way that fanboys act, uh, uh, certainly online uh, and in real life too, but it's you know easier to be mean online. Uh, and you see in a lot of these movies uh, them kind of telegraphing what they think the audience is going to react to positively or negatively. Um, and I wonder if there there is a shift after a movie like uh, Black Panther 
Um, I don't necessarily expect that anything shifts all that quickly, uh, especially for an industry like like Hollywood, but um, there are changes. I think the idea with a movie like Black Panther or if we're going to go historical, a movie like Harriet, uh, which I was a big fan of, but didn't, I guess, make as big of a splash as I thought it would last year, is the film industry has been sort of very carefully stepping up to this point of saying, well, we can we can have black actors and black writers and black directors work, work together on a black movie. And yes, of course, African-Americans will want to come see it, uh, but also white Americans will come see it. And also maybe people all over the world will want to come see it because the fear among closed-minded bourgeois white men who are funding these movies is the cis straight white man is the the universal character that everybody is used to identifying with but like ugh. the king of wakanda who could identify with that like as though we hadn't all been like pretending like we could identify with prince hamlet when we have nothing to do with that kind of world uh after after a movie like black panther does that does that open this up Aesthetics aside, a movie like Birds of Prey does feel like more of a movie by women, for women, about women. And I appreciate that her main goal wasn't about finding love or that she eventually found love. I mean, she found love with um, the Kane girl, but like it wasn't like romantic love, which I friendship. appreciate. It's about friendship. Which I appreciate that. There's this thing called the Bechdel test created by Alison Bechdel. At least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. Romance can't be the whole focus of the female characters because we see non-romantic plots with male characters all the time, uh, but less often with female characters. Also, like, I'd be happy if there was a lesbian romance, but if we are to see an LGBT romance, it's more generally to gay men. Yeah. Like, love Simon. And I appreciate that, but I want some representation. Yeah. This actually is something that's kind of wonderful about what happens in the setup to Birds of Prey. The way that Renee Montoya, Rosie Perez's character, is introduced. Yeah. I, I, I noticed that. Okay, so talk about it. Yeah, of course. I noticed that, too. It was her ex- who is a female, and they're both strong, powerful females. One's a uh, detective, and one's... Uh, ADA. Yeah, the DA. And I was like, oh, two powerful women. Women who were together in a relationship. Yeah, representation. But then <laughs> they don't mention it at all for the rest of the film. To me, that's actually even more interesting. To me, I actually love the fact that it's just sort of mentioned as like, yeah. well, this is something about these people and it is no more nor less important than yeah. if I would mention a heterosexual relationship in yeah. this narration. Mm -hmm. So to my mind, that actually was, was really cool. And I appreciated the fact that it didn't like bleed over into trying to make like the whole gang a lesbian thing. Not yeah. that that would have been a problem, but just that that would have been shameless pandering. Yeah, I, I agree <laughs> that they shouldn't have like used it more. But if there would have been another relationship, like if Harley had hit on a girl, that would have been dope. Mm -hmm. 
and I would have really enjoyed that. Like, just a quick moment, <laughs> because it seems like she, like, Harley seems like she's the kind of person that does not give an F. So she would hit no. on anybody, because I, th- I think that's what she would do. I think, assuming, I shouldn't, but... Anna's, I Anna's wagging her Wait. finger. <laughs> I, okay, did you, did you guys notice at the start of the film, she mentions three people ha- who have broken their heart. It shows up on the dials. Two are men, one is a woman. And then she's drawn like poison ivy. No, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not ever defined or mentioned after that. Um, so I, and I think that's a, like you said, that's a really good, that's a positive thing because it's just, it's normal. It's like any other relationship, but it might be poison ivy. Um, you guys would probably have to rewatch it to see. Yeah. But it, it, at the very least implies that she's uh, bisexual. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Honestly, the lack of bisexuality is one of the most annoying things about almost any cultural product representing the First World War. I erasure. Now, in comparison to a movie like Birds of Prey, Wonder Woman is almost annoyingly heterosexual. Yeah. (laughs) No, absolutely. Oh my God, let me give you this note. Oh my gosh, by the way, I love you, but I gotta go fly this plane and die. And then, like, it's the first man that she meets. Yeah. Come you know what on. they say, never commit to the first man that you date, because oh. that would be a disaster. Look where that ends up. One <laughs> dies, one lives forever. Not... <laughs> I don't know. I appreciate, I love, I love some romance. I'm a diehard mm-hmm. romantic, but I believe it sort of takes away from her power that her love for, for Steve helped her like get that stuff off of her when she was fighting Ares. Girl, you could have did that on your own. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I necessarily understand all the mechanics of that stuff. The watch. Oh yes, the watch. I, My I favorite cannot. part about the watch is that the watch is the watch is an entirely historically accurate watch. Uh, yeah. Whoever whoever did the props for the watch was like, I'm going to kill it on this watch. <laughs> what are you guys talking about? The watch. That Which watch? Okay. Steve this is, gave to uh, Diana. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So here's here's where I get to lay down my one like really dweeby like tech dude. Yeah, do it. Element do of it. expertise, and then and then and then I'll throw it to you, Rachel, for why this is so stupid. Literally, men did not wear wristwatches until the First World War. It was considered a feminine thing, and if you were a man, you wore a pocket watch. And in the First World War, the wristwatches that they came out with literally looked like that watch in the movie. Uh, or it was a leather band or whatever with like a freaking pocket watch just freaking welded to the top of it. <laughs> and it looked idiotic and clunky, but the idea was that it wasn't like a little tiny women's watch. Uh, so you wouldn't look feminine at all. Um, regar- regardless of, you know, whether you had a buddy in the trenches that you might have been having sex with. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but at least your watch wasn't really tiny, and it looked like a uh, pocket watch with a wristband on it. Now, Rachel, take it away. I love that fact, and I forgot about it. But the men would have been a lot more aggressive in that time period. The men would probably try and fight her to some degree, even though they know she was powerful, because she was basically attacking their manhood where she saved them and she probably would have been 
um, spat on or like hit on a lot more during Maybe. the after party. It, it is perhaps a little crazy to like have historical critiques of, of a superhero movie, but we're going to do that. My bigger objection was actually to the character, is it uh, Dr. Maru or Dr. Poison? Yeah. Am yeah, I right Maru. that they called her Dr. Poison at some point? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, her existence at all is just plainly absurd. Which is not to say that there were women chemists. Uh, in fact, there were. They would frequently be working along with and technically under male chemists, right? So, um, like the most famous German chemist of this period is Fritz Haber, who actually uh, is in many ways the inventor of modern chemical warfare. Uh, also the inventor of modern chemical fertilizer agriculture. Uh, so the good and the bad. <laughs> or the bad and the bad, I suppose, depending. Bad and the bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, his wife was a big part of uh, his research team, you know, and in many cases... Uh, similar things have been said of Einstein's early work as well. It's hard to tell sometimes uh, what this genius scientist did himself and what uh, his significant other might have done, uh, and it's really unclear. Whether you can just simply credit that to this great man, or, you know, is this a partnership, or were certain things just straight up stolen? And if I'm remembering correctly, Fritz Haber's wife actually uh, committed suicide during the First World War because he got so into this idea of uh, being this hotshot chemical warfare officer and she thought that what he was doing was just so grotesque. I mean, he was literally leading chemical attacks on the front lines uh, in addition to designing uh, chlorine and phosgene uh, and mustard gas type, type things. And uh, so anyway, the, this type of a character, uh, this uh, Dr. Maru, uh, played by Elena Anaya, in any military hierarchy of this period, it's very unlikely that she would have risen to the level that we see here. And I would say that would especially be the case in uh, the, the German military. Uh, obviously, all of the, the nations involved in the First World War by our standards would be quite sexist uh, no yeah. doubt about that but I think it was even uh, even even more true in, in a place like uh, Germany uh, and with a, with a culture like the Prussian military culture it's just not realistic for her to be in that position I'm all for feminism but if you're gonna do something about a historical event or era make it right what are you doing yeah. if you're not doing it right? <laughs> yeah, she was the unrealistic antithesis to Wonder Woman. Perhaps one thing that makes it more realistic is that she is able to be in the position that she's in because she has Ludendorff as her backer. Right. So certainly women chemists would have existed and typically they would have been working in a team with a man and then again, Typically, that would be their husband. Um, of course. Because I guess that's the thing about love and power. Uh, <laughs> they go together. Uh, sometimes, I guess. I mean, does she seem like an interesting character? Uh, or like 
a useful character or just or is it just like automatically because this is Wonder Woman we have to have a female antagonist as well yeah I feel like she's obligatory to some degree yeah like I would I was expecting more oomph from her overall character like she was good but she needed more pizzazz Anna you seem really like amused that that we're even bothering to talk about her is does she seem just like completely silly to you yeah yeah she does I mean she seems yes yes she probably her role probably would have existed but she just seems thrown in there like like a almost like a token character like oh gotta have her like here she is you know any thoughts on the mask there are two masks involved here right like the idea first off that a chemical could break a mask, right? And then secondly, the fact that she wears a mask, a prosthetic yeah. face covering, right? Yeah, and mm-hmm. was were the were the gas masks made of like a canvas or a plastic? Um usually it was canvas or flannel with glass panes for the eyes early on, and then later on you'd have rubber. So I'm guessing d- these would have been rubber at this point realistically yeah if we're assuming that this is 1918 everything should have been rubber but also you just go to war with what you have so you know the american army was showing up on the battlefield in 1918 and sometimes they didn't have any gas masks but if this Uh, is this is dr maru we're talking about she's like the top chemist she's dr poison so she probably has the best stuff so yeah the stuff that she was creating the mask sort of like burned apart but if they were rubber they would have melted so it her concept would have worked better with canvas where it's more permeable but with rubber it's not as realistic you're, on you're a scientific even level. even this is taking it way too seriously but <laughs> but 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 I'll, I'll do you one better which is that this is in some ways a literalization of a metaphor so there was a term used in the war for a type of poison gas called a mask breaker. And as we see sometimes in fantasy and science fiction, you can get some traction out of taking something that's a metaphor and then literalizing it. Like if you say, say the term doomsday device, right? Like mm-hmm. a, you, could, you might say doomsday device just offhand by like saying like, oh, well, it's a weapon that's so bad that ultimately no one would ever use it because you're talking about the destruction of the world. And then maybe it's not literally the destruction of the world that you get people, you know, dickering back and forth. But well, if we all go into mine shafts, we don't actually have to all die and stuff like that. But uh, then eventually, okay, you could have a movie where it's, well, say it's an, actually, an actual doomsday weapon. Say it, you know, just blows up the earth automatically. Uh, like in Dr. Strangelove, or say we have a Death Star, like in Star Wars, right? That could blow up a whole planet, right? So sometimes literalizing a metaphor can be a really interesting thing that you do in science fiction, and I think that's what's happening here. I think amusingly, this movie has not aged well in uh, three years, (laughs) because the idea of the mask breaker is you don't have to literally break a mask. You break a mask by having something that's just such a small particle that it just goes right through the respirator. And they weren't doing uh, bioweapons at that point, so it wasn't like literally a virus. Uh, What it would usually be would be a a very fine particulate nausea agent 
you'd say combine uh, a tear gas or a nausea gas that could get through the mask with something like a chlorine gas or a phosgene gas that couldn't get through the mask. It'd go through the mask, the person would start crying, and then when they got to the point where they had to vomit, they'd take the mask off, at which point they'd be exposed to the chlorine and they'd die. So <laughs> you don't literally need to break the mask. Um, and by this point in 1918, you have mustard gas, which works on the skin, which goes right through the gas mask, which, which uh, requires, you know, basically you need to wear like a rubber suit to get through it or uh, just tough it out as the case might be. The entire thing is completely pointless. She's just being a drama queen. Like that's, that's <laughs> the gas. I mean, the, it's just, you know, a lesson in why we shouldn't take these things so literally. The idea is that you have, you have on both sides, you have on both sides the, the dream of a weapon that can break the stalemate. Whether that's uh, some kind of special poison gas which certainly they were trying to develop better poison gases. This, this one just isn't particularly realistic in a meaningful way. Or you have a uh, super soldier, so to speak, right? Steve Rogers. <laughs> Steve Rogers. Which one is Steve Rogers? There's so many Captain Steves. America. There's so many Steves. Oh, okay. That seems like Robert a very is from general name. Steve Rogers is from Captain America. Yeah. <laughs> the example that we actually have from the First World War uh, is Sergeant Alvin York, which is a slightly more interesting name. Because I'm thinking to myself, like, what are the actual popular film representations of the Western Front of the First World War in which we have heroic or super heroic figures. And honestly, it's Wonder Woman and it's Sergeant York uh, from 1941, uh, film about the First World War that basically ends up being used as a Second World War recruiting tool. Um, and it's based on a true story about a guy who had claimed that he was a pacifist. And then I guess they talked him out of it. And he, he uh, captured, uh, I think, a hundred some German soldiers, like nearly single-handedly. True story, but then you wow. pump this up to make it sound like, ah, oh, yes, look at how great we are as Americans. When you know, well, you know, freakish yeah, things it, happen every once in a while. You know. Yeah, it's great to die for your country. <laughs> That's like the whole third fifth of Captain America, where they're capitalizing on him being this scrawny little boy, and then he's off doing shows for the men and yeah i've i've been re-watching the marvel movies in timeline chronological order mm -hmm. so I've, I've recently watched it and captain america is literally a super soldier right yeah yeah so he's a super he was soldier genetically and, modified and then he becomes this sort of propaganda cool yeah Did, did anyone look into uh, the past versions of Wonder Woman? Because I was actually just pulling it up before, and I was surprised to learn that in the previous versions of Wonder Woman, Steve Trevor crash lands his plane in World War II. Oh. They chose to make this World War I instead of World War II, which seems like an odd choice. 
I actually have the explanation if you want to hear it, like directly from them. In the comics, Steve, Trevor, and Diana met in the Second World War. However, in the film, they meet in the First World War. The change in World Wars was made because the filmmakers thought that the era was more suitable. Quote, World War I was the first time that civilization, as we know it, was, find- was first finding its roots. But it's not something that we really know the history of. In this world, there are questions about women's rights, about a mechanized war where you don't see who you, who you are killing. It's such an interesting time, end quote. And yeah. I have to agree with them. Yeah. yeah. It seems more uncivilized. And that's what makes Wonder Woman seem so great. Yeah. I think that setting it in the, in the First World War makes that contrast between the classical or traditional notion of warfare and that modern notion of distance mechanized warfare more obvious you see in a lot of the literature and film of the Second World War, this notion of cynicism, just this basic sense that uh, war's horrible and here we go, here's another one. Well, we're gonna do our best. We've gotta do it this time. We didn't wanna do it, but we gotta do it, you know? Uh, At least that's what you see in a lot of the uh, American films, especially the ones that they're making during the war. They're resigned in a very strange way, whereas, the propaganda in the First World War is very oriented around these traditional notions of heroism, of vengeance, of courage, uh, and of the metaphor of crusading even. And none of that lives up to what the soldiers see when they get there, which is why you have this harsh break in the literature uh, to this very cynical literature that then will inform the way that war is represented in the Second World War and the way the war is thought about popularly. It sort of ironically, this means to my mind, and you know, tell me if you can come up with another one, this kind of ends up being the most popular representation of the First World War possibly since a movie like Sergeant York and then until a movie like 1917. Like for my generation, for your generation, this is probably the representation of the First World War that most people saw. It makes sense because people are watching Wonder Woman to see Wonder Woman, not Wonder (laughs) Woman in World War I. They want to go back to their childhood and show their kids what they grew up with, but like the new version of it yeah I mean I mean perhaps you can and you can speculate why people do that I think that people do it to remind themselves like oh my well as a form of escapism like oh my life isn't that bad compared to this awful awful killing machine you know but people could I also feel like people could be watching it because our lives are so mundane that we need to feel some sort of emotion (laughs) that we want to watch this thing that like really like makes you feel emotion and that's part of why because if you look at the I looked at this study and um Americans watch a lot more crime and murder and like <laughs> the nasty stuff than other countries um which that goes I wanted to say this at the beginning but I kind of forgot because um we're American movies Compared to other movies, war movies are, 
and like action stuff are more likely to be made in America, I feel like, because we like that danger that um I'm gonna sneeze that um that battle gross stuff people want to feel something they like the nasty because they can't express it otherwise but they can like a movie and stuff well there's a question of whether is this because we're bored or is this because we're sick (laughs) and i think it can be either and this kind of brings us back to a concept like modernism right this brings us back to gustave moreau's painting of helen at the gates of troy right you know, look at how fine I am and <laughs> blood and guts at, all around me. I did that. <laughs> I did that, exactly. Dr. Uh, Pimple Popper, the Tobro. Um... Right, but when you're like at this civilizational level that like, well, we've done all there is to do, fuck around and see what happens. Uh, let, let's have a war. I mean, the, I mean literally in, in the early 80s, there's a punk band uh, called Fear and they were, you know, I don't know if they would have called themselves fascist, but maybe I would call them fascist. They were jerks, you know, they were dicks. And they had a song called Let's Have a War, you know, not, not wow. like, not like, presenting any deep philosophical position, you know, not like in the strictly political fascist sense saying, oh, well, these are people we need to go to war against. They were just saying, I'm bored. Let's fuck shit up, you know, just in that, like, just dumb bro punk, like, (laughs) get in the pit and fucking bash some skulls. And, And that's what you see in that late 19th century decadentism moving towards the first world war um and sometimes it's just that stupid stupid and in their era you might have called it romantic right sense of just like this is boring there's nothing interesting about our civilization uh i'm fascinated by destruction you know and then in other cases, there was like a more political bent to it, whether that was, you know, people who were nationalists and thought that they, their country would gain something out of it, or even people who were uh, revolutionary uh, anarchists or communists or whatnot, uh, who thought that, you know, out of the ashes of a cataclysm, a better thing would grow. Uh, and it's impossible for me not to remember this whole wave of movies in the late nineties that were all about destruction, like, like massive wide scale, like American cities, like blasted and burnt to the ground destruction, like the American culture fascinated by its own end. And then uh, of course, September 11th happened. Uh, and then we had we still have the same fascinations with violence, but increasingly they're pushed outward. Um, though I, you know, I guess they're pushed inward too. This you know comes all in all directions. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when you get down to it, we are sick, but yeah. we're also we're also dehumanized to our own level of sickness. So we don't. So then we just keep going back for more, right? Yeah. I guess I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that we learned something, but it's it's it, a part of yeah part of the the title that I chose for this was that it does seem like history is repeating itself in a really nasty way. Like we we had like like we can't learn anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm just 
more pessimistic than I should be. Are, are you an optimist, Rachel? Um, it depends on the things. <laughs> when it comes to politics, um, I'm definitely jaded. Um, but when it comes to like human to human, I'm more of an optimist. But when it's like displaced in large groups, I feel like I'm more pessimist. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure. Well, it's funny, like I, I wanted to use this term, the pointless century, because like I said, it feels like politics is circling back around and it's like, oh, but we, we didn't, we didn't get, you know, a, a meaningful socialist revolution. We didn't get uh, an end to war, right? And that's all the, all the First World War stuff is like, oh yes, the war to end all wars. And even Wonder Woman is saying, ah, oh, yes, all I have to do is destroy Ares and then war will mm -hmm. be over. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, we, we didn't get any of the things that we were promised. We didn't get any of the things that we worked for. But we did get, we did get a clear shift in civil liberties and civil rights uh, and social norms over the course of the 20th century. We did get uh, civil rights, at least on paper, right, for, uh, for non-white people in the United States. We did get acceptance uh, for uh, LGBTQ folks, uh, maybe not universally, but increasingly. Uh, there have been some moments of progress I feel like I inevitably, you know, call you out on this one because it's, I mean, think of all the people we've talked about where like, oh yeah, that person was, that person was probably gay and, you know, sort of had to hide it. And uh, the, uh, we want to get back to someone like William Moulton Marston, who I discovered was actually in a long-term uh, polyamorous relationship. Oh, I wrote down his last name wrong. Of course. Yeah. Well, William Moulton Marston was his name his mama gave him uh his pen name was charles moulton so okay. very very often in those days you'd you know use a pseudonym if you, i mean mm -hmm. he was a uh working psychologist who uh uh was writing comic books so you know you have reason for using a second name i suppose yeah and and you're right he was he was polyamorous um so that's something yeah. It's something, but then it en it ends up being the same thing because then there's a lot of speculation over well, how much of the Wonder Woman character was he writing, and how much was his wife, and uh, mm -hmm. their. Uh... If it's it's if, if it's a second woman, it's a sister wife. Okay, sister wife. Okay, so uh, how much was he writing, and how much was his wife and sister wife writing? of the Wonder Woman character, we won't ever really know, sort of in the same way that Fritz Haber and his wife were working together on chemical engineering. They also mm -hmm. apparently invented the lie detector. Yeah, they did, which is interesting. Um, yeah, but I mean, the part that I left out of the story last week is that obviously, um, Emma Goldman was involved in the labor movement and he would often go to see her speak and that's where he got the inspiration obviously for Wonder Woman is because he was so he was so moved by 
how she would speak so eloquently and obviously he was fascinated by how she took her place within the man's sphere you know because during that time um even more so than today there was um the prevalence of the ideology of separate spheres so and she uh and a number of other anarchists in her circles were uh I guess as openly bisexual as you'd see people in that era. Um, so there's a lot going on. The kinds of things that in this era people would just refer to in the in the general sense as free love. Mm-hmm. Um, and didn't necessarily categorize in all the ways that we do now. Do we think that Wonder Woman actually has anything to do with Emma Goldman anymore when we see her in a movie like this? Or That's a good question. I think, I think what they're trying, what they're attempting to do is match the original power or influence that Emma Goldman has, but obviously as it's moved through time, you know, it's changed. So Emma Goldman's Wonder Woman, you know, what she was actually doing is not what we see today with something, with someone like Gal Gadot. They're two separate things. I think that with the round glasses, in the hat, I can see a physical resemblance, and I suppose you, you know, leave it to Hollywood to strip everything else away except for the physical resemblance. <laughs> right. And certainly she doesn't care about those separate spheres. No. I think that maybe to the people of her era, to the capitalist men of her era, and to the politicians of her era, uh, anarcho feminist saying well you don't have to run the world this way you can do things different would be about the same as an amazon from an isolated island you know dropping in and being like no we have to defeat the god of war like it would it would make as little sense wonder woman has evolved as values over time have changed emma goldman was an anarchist but um the gal gadot i think that's how it's pronounced wonder woman is about helping everybody instead of well i'm gonna I'm going to go do my own thing for my own self. You can go F off. But there are some traces of Emma Goldman, but values of the community. But that, that red anarchism that Emma Goldman was advocating isn't like a, you know, libertarian anarchism like we, we would see on the, you know, right wing today. It's It was a very communitarian vision. And I mean, and initially she thought, you know, after the revolution in Russia, she thought that she'd go over there and see something that was a little bit closer to the world that she envisioned. And then she was very disillusioned with the way that the Bolsheviks uh, ran things in terms of state state power and state control. Uh, obviously, not a whole lot of uh, appreciation of certain kinds of freedoms from the Bolsheviks uh, for reasons I, that surely we'll get into later. Mm-hmm. I, I almost want to come back around to Black Panther because I'm fascinated by this idea, sort of as we thought about um, Apollinaire's the size of the gunner from Dakar. <laughs> um, yes, of course. This idea of someone coming into the core of civilization from an unknown place with a different knowledge set and looking at it and being like, you people are crazy. That seemed to be something that was very clear 
even in the European consciousness. Like they knew that what they were doing was madness, even if they also felt like it was the only thing that they could be doing. Or if not all of them felt that way, then certainly the artists, some of them felt that way. If we have a civilization like the Amazons of Wonder Woman or uh, Wakanda of Black Panther, we see in these comic book worlds the dream of a section of the world that set off from the corruption of imperialist capitalist civilization, whatever we want to describe the thing we're living in as. And then the problem of, well, do we want to send anybody out into that horrible place? <laughs> do we have any thoughts about that kind of plot line or that kind of a setup? Or what does it mean? I think it just intrigues people because we usually films are set in the viewpoint of where we're already part of society, but people are intrigued by when they see themselves from a different perspective, from a totally different cultural view, and we realize how how barbaric we are. So I think that aspect just intrigues people. I think there's this aspect of, well, what could be, or what should be, but yet, as we touched on earlier, well, this is a pessimistic view. Yes, there's progress, but things tend to stay the same unless there's a huge shift in power. And we see that with the spots of progress that have been made. Like you talked about the civil rights movement, the legalizing of marriage for all people. Um, I think it's such a popular genre because in a sad way, it's reflecting on our failures. I also think it's what people wish we had if we could just try hard enough to get to that place with that power shift or that revolt to change the way that we live and change our perspective. I think it's how people wish we could live because with Wakanda, the most jarring example was Martin Freeman in uh, Missouri's lab. Um, And he was there and he's like, what's all going on? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Um, I wish I knew what you were talking about. Um, well, they have these balls that they can communicate with that are like they're like magnetic balls, but they can do like a bunch of stuff. And he was like totally weirded out by everything, and it was like a total cultural shift. And him there really emphasized the point of how different we are and how Wakanda is so much better. We get this in, I guess, in a certain sense, all utopian fiction, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of thought experiment of, well, how could the world be? We get it canonical version of this in feminist literature written by Charlotte Perkins Gilman around the turn of the century. It's a story called Her Land, sort of similar to this concept of Wonder Woman's uh, Amazon civilization. It's basically imagining, well, what would an all-female civilization look like, and then what happens when men show up? I think around 1971, if I'm remembering the year correctly, Joanna Russ, a major feminist science fiction writer of the New Wave, sort of rehashes the concept in a story called When It Changed, if I'm remembering correctly. But the idea, again, stands 
firm as this concept of the isolated, utopian, all-women society. One that in this movie, for whatever reason, doesn't appear to um, involve lesbianism. But maybe that's just because we're not really talking about sex at all in this movie, uh, except for, you know, the, the, the mushy movie parts between the leading man and the leading woman. What? I think that we can read it as we can read it as a dream of a better world, but we can also read it as like a reappropriation of something that that something that once had a, a revolutionary power to it being reappropriated back into capitalist cultural production as a way of saying, well, this is only a thought experiment. These worlds can only exist to eventually be disturbed and invaded and corrupted by the real world that we know is the way that things actually operate, right? So Wonder Woman exists only to be used in the man's world as a weapon against Ares. Wakanda only exists to uh, eventually have to come to the decision of uh, being in in relationship with the rest of the world, which is to say imperialist capitalism. And that ends up kind of replaying all those assumptions of colonialism that well, eventually we will conquer even the heart of darkness. Or to, to spin it differently, you could say, maybe uh, Wonder Woman gives us a merely liberal feminism rather than a radical feminism, which is to say, you too can be a super soldier in the fight against nameless evil people who happen to be born in a different country. <laughs> All right. more to delve into with the historical aspects that are included with Wonder Woman, but Birds yeah. of Prey is better. <laughs> it's just, it's just like, what, more fun? Is that? I don't know. Wonder Woman, to me, was just too predictable yeah. in comparison. Yeah. Well, I think with Wonder Woman, you, you run into the same problem that you have with almost any Superman movie, which is, like, yeah. okay, you're, you're super powerful, you're perfect and wonderful and that's boring you know yeah it is and and you're left sort of like picking out problems with it at best whether that's historical problems or whether that's like why do you fall for this dopey dude like you you're so much better than him like you're you're a demigod (laughs) you're you're a god but like oh my gosh this watch and the fact that he well okay dying for someone but it does it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense, which is I guess I should probably refrain from expressing my own opinions, but no I, you, the whole point of this is to express your I, own opinions. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Th- which is why I generally avoid the genre. <laughs> Cause it's just like it just seems to be a recycling of the same like you said, the same things over and over and then it's like Oh well, when are they gonna make? <laughs> when are they gonna make another one? You know, just. It's uh, this year, by the way. It's this year. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be a Wonder Woman set in 1984 released this summer. Ah. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs>
you don't have to worry too much because it's Wonder Woman. You know she's going to win, even though they have music that makes you think otherwise. Instead of armor, she's going to have leg warmers and they're going to play Africa. Yeah, they're you not going to be playing like was Black Africa Flag. Was Africa in 87? <laughs> was released in 82. Yeah, exactly, which is oh. why th- that would work. I, I literally pulled it up on wikipedia long enough to see that it existed and it's it's all like fuchsia laser beams and oh, you know uh cool like, blue electric background but less funny so we have we have a great trope here in both movies that is invented in the second world war specifically for use in propaganda films and we would not be doing our job if we didn't mention it which is this mixed gang ensemble cast right so in in wonder woman you get like all these various ethnicities uh that are working together um more or less hewing to uh very well-trod stereotypes but done in a way that makes them seem respectful (laughs) uh so you have the the um scout and trader who of course is native american right you have the the spy uh who's an actor uh very very cultured and suave but also deceptive when he needs to be and really he's a better person than all the europeans but he happens to be i I believe moroccan or tunisian or is that never explained well he wears a fez at any rate uh, and, then, and then we have we have the American, we have uh, the Scotsman who warms his balls by the fire, and uh, then we also, of course, have a woman with superpowers, which is as I suppose reasonable as all those other things. Uh, but but in in Birds of Prey, we similarly get that that mixed ensemble cast, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And it's something that's, as I said, literally invented by Hollywood uh, during the Second World War for use in propaganda movies as a way of saying, hey, you don't have to like this dude, but make sure you have his back because, you know, he has the same interests as you. And then it becomes something that we see in most action movies after that. It's the sort of feel-good action movie thing. And yeah, it always just so happens to be the American or the Anglo-Saxon or the blonde or the white person who is the leader of the gang, but everybody else gets represented too. Funny how that works out. Funny how that works out. Um, But we see it in Birds of of Prey for sure. And in a certain sense, Birds of Prey is almost making a joke about that because they only form their gang at the very end and then the the gang gets named in like the the concluding monologue where harley quinn's like yeah you know birds of prey and she she set up this gang they're 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 dweebs whatever don't mind that why is it a better movie why is this gang exciting i think it's because they sort of play on everything skewed from what you'd expect and that interests people they're like developing the, the, thing, like the genre the, tropes in yeah. a different way. You have it there so it's familiar enough, but then they skew it a little bit so that you're more interested and um, invested in it. I don't know. I'd have to disagree. I, I, I don't think it's 
I don't think it's any different than well I guess I guess how they set it up is different but I don't I don't think at its core it's any different than most other groups that have existed like that in film but I mean what the big I feel like the big draw for this movie is obviously Harley Quinn herself and people would rush to say that she's simple you know in the way that she acts you know, she's portrayed as very childish but I think that there's an underlying complexity there that is worth examining and that's what makes it interesting I agree that there is some some complexity there I mean I think that both things can be true including the idea that maybe some of her childishness is an act well yeah that's I mean you have to ask yourself are they are they just doing that to make her more palatable because she is so strong you know you get into those kinds of questions yeah Um, she's still finding herself she's found her new her new identity and um i'm guessing with most other identities um that people discover or truly realize um i i know for a fact that um within the queer community once people truly come like realize who they are they put on like their gay persona um for a while when they're out in public for a bit so i feel that could be partially what harley harley is doing um because she's found her true identity so she has to find her new normal her whole personality her whole character was based around loving joker but now she doesn't have joker so now she has to find herself i think that we we could say that. I, it's hard for me to think of it that way because I haven't seen her in any other movie. I vaguely remember seeing how she was drawn in like the, I think, 90s era Batman cartoon, but I don't remember a thing about her. To me, because she's referring to the Joker in the past in this movie, it's more like, yes, I am aware that she's recovering from that, Part of this might be also because I'm a man and because I don't necessarily take quite so seriously the idea that, well, maybe she did really orient her whole life around him. But I do know that she's becoming somebody different. It's just a question of like fathoming what that depth is. Um, She was being abused by him, but she obviously had psychological problems where like Stockholm syndrome or something. Well, and her profile is of a survivor of abuse from her father, from the nuns of her orphanage, and then from uh, the Joker. One of the things that makes her complex as a character is that she also happens to be a trained psychologist. So though she appears as though she's just drifting through life, she has these moments where she will read somebody else dead on, like, painfully like this is who you are and this is why you do what you do and so she must understand herself that way too even if she might not talk about that i think she does and they even they even mentioned some of that in the film is she supposed to be a sociopath (laughs) (laughs) that's a good question i mean like the bit about the you ruined my egg sandwich and I'm out for blood uh, is supposed to be like a very direct sense of like, well, she cares about things. She cares about her needs, 
more than she cares about other people. And obviously she's a bonkers criminal and all that, <laughs> which is something that we just sort of like accept very easily, more easily than we accept like a purely good character like Wonder Woman or Superman. I think it's easier for us to accept, oh yeah, she's bonkers and a criminal and she doesn't care if she, you know, breaks someone's legs. She doesn't care if, you know, this, that, the other, right? Well, she's complex. If she can kill a dozen cops, that doesn't bother her. Yeah. Nope. But Mm -hmm. she faces that moral issue with a kid. She doesn't personally feel it, but she feels a social obligation to care for the kid and not kill the kid. So she's complex, and I think that's what makes part of the movie more, what makes Birds of Prey more interesting than Wonder Woman, because Wonder Woman is cut and dry. She was literally created for this job, and she's out to do that job. Mm-hmm. Well, in my mind, this circles back around to modernism in that we like these villainous characters, we like these sociopathic characters, if they're not totally sociopathic. I mean, I think that we see in some of the true crime genres that they go too far and then it's like, well, there's no there there. At a certain point, there's like nothing human. Like if you're you're like watching true crime interviews with maybe not everyone on death row, I would never say such a thing, but, but some people on death row and they describe their crimes as though it, they're describing themselves, you know, going to the store and they need to have picking some up their groceries. relationship to the the portrayal. They have to yeah. feel some connection to it. We can have an anti-heroic character as long as they're still human, as long as there's something recognizable. Oddly, I think the cheese sandwich is part of that. Like oddly, I think that like actually the I cheese sandwich is not that extreme. Yeah, I mean people care about their breakfast, especially when they're hungry, right? And sorry, egg sandwich. There is there's like also a specific New Yorker thing about the the egg sandwich that I almost want to expand to the whole of the Northeast because egg sandwiches are very big in Philadelphia as well, but it's also one of those things that New Yorkers like to talk about as like a specifically New York thing as though, you know, for instance, there isn't pizza in the rest of the world according to New Yorkers, right? <laughs> It, it is a sort of cultural touchstone, but it's also something that's like very, very relatable. And then to take it in that direction that it's like, you know the times that you've dropped your egg sandwich and gotten really upset, right? <laughs> Imagine that you cared about that egg sandwich more than a human being. But that'd be funny and that'd be certainly a weird person. And okay, maybe a supervillain would feel that way. It's more relatable than the ultra wealthy supervillain which is the one that we normally see the one like the lex luther or in this movie it's roman sionis the black mass the moment in this movie for me that was like oh yeah was um that they're fighting in the 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 fun house uh and uh i hear that opening riff to barracuda yep yeah and that that for me was like ah yeah we're gonna rock um (laughs) i just cannot think of any better song that like needed 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 to be on this soundtrack it's a great song yeah. Anna, did you have any moment like that where you're like, oh yeah? Well, I mean, I agree with that one. I think I think the coolest set of the whole movie is that is the fun house, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, 80s music is just, it's whole other. Yeah, and then just girls. the covers of all the classic songs. I just live for that. The Suicide Squad album was great by all the covers of the artists, but the movie was trash. So they made up for it by having Brendan Urie from Panic at the Disco singing Bohemian Rhapsody. That's, After this is over, I'm going to listen to Barracuda on repeat. Because why not? I I did notice that there were that there were mostly covers on the soundtrack, and I think that's interesting that that's carried over from from Suicide Squad. Um, there was one song that I don't know I don't know what the title of the song was, but it was I guess basically used as the main theme at the beginning and end of the movie, and probably at a couple of other moments. And it has this, this riff, this uh, sort of like uh, six eight like dun riff, and it's either a sample or a very close imitation of "You Don't Own Me" by Leslie Gore. So Leslie Gore, who was famous in the '60s as a pop singer for a couple of songs about uh, Love Triangle. And then this one particularly noteworthy song, You Don't Own Me, um, which resurged in popularity a couple years back um, as a sort of feminist statement. Leslie Gore came out as a lesbian in, oh geez, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get the date right on this. I wanna say either the 90s or early 2000s. Nobody remembers any of this. <laughs> no, there, there was like, there was like a moment in like what in my mind seems like recent memory and it could have been like five years ago. And if it was, then it wouldn't be recent memory as far as you're concerned. But there was a moment when like people were singing along with verses of You Don't Own Me on YouTube as like uh you know, feminist uh, pro-choice statement. The point is that she's she's recording, uh, you know, in the early 60s, she's recording songs about like how she's fighting with this other girl over this boy. And then she records this really, you know, much more badass song about like, you know what, don't tell me what to do. Fuck you boys. And then, uh, you know, later in life uh, comes out as, uh, as queer and, uh, you know, this is sort of her contribution to pop music and, and why she's a feminist icon. And and there are some sort of beats, there are some sort of rhythms, there are some sort of like uh, tunes that you hear like and you see a badass woman walking down the street talking about how she's done with her man and how she's gonna uh, live her own life. It can't not be referencing that song. Like I said, it might be a sample or it might just be, you know, riffing on that same tune. Just the same way that, you know, anytime anybody goes, you're going back to at least five different songs that eventually takes it all the way back uh, 
to muddy waters and uh, presumably even earlier because you know, everybody was always ripping off somebody else. So there, there are good things about just like recycling the tropes too. It can sometimes be productive. It can sometimes be a way of people remembering what things meant, remembering sort of moments of defiance and resistance and creating a subculture around that. I feel like with a character like Harley Quinn, but I want to take that back to modernism as like the refutation of melodrama. Like in, in classic mem melodrama, before you have realist modernism come in and change the dramatic landscape, uh, you know who the good guys are and the bad guys are at the beginning of any theatrical production. And it's just a question of sorting it out through any series of confusions and deceptions. Modernist theater starts to complicate that with characters that are more and more flawed. You see it a little bit earlier in the novel, like we talked about naturalism even, where uh, maybe you're a bad person, but is it really your fault? <laughs> you live in a bad world. Um, but eventually we get to the point of there being straight up anti-heroes and to me, that's something that that makes a movie like like Birds of Prey. We have to call it postmodern because of all the shifting frames and because the antihero is drawn so extremely and so in some ways comically. But it does it does indicate sort of the problem with characters that I think of as very classical characters like like Wonder Woman or like Superman where it's this like a white hat character. This is a character that's always good and always only gonna do one thing. I've got one last weird twist for you. Anybody notice who the executive producers of these movies were if we're talking about whether it's possible to make a feminist movie at all? The directors, I didn't look that far. What executive producers not even directors so, I know. Yeah, so I know. so margot roby herself was uh, executive producer of birds of prey which i guess makes sense because well, it's sort of her vehicle and also probably because after Suicide Squad flopped so bad, it might be one of those things where it's like, well, okay, you can redeem yourself if you shell out the money for it. And she had the money for it, right? So in a certain sense, it is like automatically, maybe not automatically feminist, I guess I got to hold off on that, but it, it has the potential to be automatically feminist, at least in the material sense. Again, women making movies about women. The executive producer of Wonder Woman is, or was. Steve Mnuchin the current secretary of the treasury. Uh. And I had known that he had dabbled in film production before, but that is fascinating to me. Uh, it is. It's, yeah, I'm. Hmm. <laughs> now, just because he's, just because he's, you know, shelling out the money for it doesn't mean that he actually has anything to do in writing it or, you know, coming up with the concepts, but it does, you know, it does, put him in a position where, you know, you wouldn't do anything that would cause, you know, daddy to pull the money away. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Art is gross. How do you even frame that? Like, 
What the heck? I mean, it's like it's like all this shit with with Harvey Weinstein, right? Ugh. It's you know there were a lot of really great movies that he put down the money for, and he did a lot of horrible, horrible things. Mm-hmm. And he stopped a lot of really great movies from being made, or who knows, maybe bad movies too, but certainly good movies also. Uh, and more importantly, movies by women who he was victimizing. Yeah. Uh, he stopped those movies from being made. I think he got COVID in jail. Yes, yes, he did indeed. Mm-hmm. The, he uh, survived it, at least so far. He could always get uh, it again. Is it bad to say, oh, darn? <laughs> You can say whatever you want to say.